Chapter 4, Part 1 of Pioneers of the Pacific Coast. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Son of the Exiles. Pioneers of the Pacific Coast, a chronicle of sea rovers and fur hunters by Agnes C. Laut. Cook and Vancouver. It was the quest for a passage to the Atlantic that brought Captain James Cook to the Pacific. Before joining the Royal Navy, Cook had been engaged as a captain in the Baltic trade, and from Russian merchantmen he had learned all about Bering's voyage in the North Pacific, which was being quoted by the geographers in proof of an open passage north of Alaska. In the Baltic, too, Cook had heard about the Strait of Juan de Fuca, which was supposed to lead through the continent to the Atlantic. At this time, all England was agog with demands that the Hudson's Bay Company should find a northwest passage or surrender its charter. Parliament had offered a reward of £20,000 to anyone discovering a passageway to the Pacific, and Samuel Hearn had been sent tramping inland to explore the north by land. Curiously enough, Cook had been born in 1728, the very year that Bering had set out on his first expedition, and he was in the Baltic when news came back to St. Petersburg of Bering's death. The year 1759 found him at Quebec with Wolfe. During the next ten years he explored and charted northern and southern seas, and when the British Parliament determined to set at rest forever the myth of a passage, Cook was chosen to conduct the expedition. He was granted two ships, the Resolution and the Discovery, and among the crews was a young midshipman named Vancouver. The vessels left England in the summer of 1776, and sailed from the Sandwich Islands in 1778 for Drake's New Albion. The orders were to proceed from New Albion up to 65 degrees north latitude and search for a passage to Hudson Bay. On March the 7th, 1778, 200 years after Drake's famous voyage, Cook's ships descried thin, sharp lines of land in the offing. As the vessels drew nearer the coast, towering mountains met the gaze of the explorers. Cook had orders to keep a sharp lookout in this region for the Strait of Juan de Fuca. But storm drove him offshore, and although he discovered and named Cape Flattery at the entrance to the strait that now bears the name of the old Greek pilot, he did not catch as much as a glimpse of the great bay opening inland. In fact, he set down that in this latitude there was no possibility of Juan de Fuca's strait existing. Landing was made on Vancouver Island at the famous harbour now known as Nootka, and Indians swarmed the sea in gaily painted dugouts with prows carved like totem poles. Women and children were in the canoes, that signified peace, and though cannon were manned in readiness, an active and friendly trade at once opened between the crews and the natives. Fifteen hundred beaver and sea otter pelts were exchanged for a handful of old nails. At least two thousand natives gathered round the two ships. Some of the men wore masks and had evidently just returned from a raid, for they offered Cook human skulls from which the flesh had not been removed and pointed to slave captives. 
anyone who knows vancouver island in spring needs no description of the inspiring scene surveyed by the sea-weary crews snow rested on the coastal mountains the huge opal dome now known as mount baker loomed up through the clouds of dawn and dusk on the southern skyline in fair weather the long pink ridge of the olympics could be seen towards puget sound inland from nootka were vast mountain ridges heavily forested to the very clouds with fir trees and spruce of incredible size lower down grew cypress with gnarled red roots entangling the rocks to the very water's edge spanish moss swinging from branch to branch and partridge drumming in the underbrush for a month the deep-sea travellers enjoyed a welcome furlough on shore one night the underbrush surrounding the encampment was found to be literally alive with painted warriors cook demanded an explanation of the great tai or chief the indian explained that these were guards to protect the encampment however that might be cook deemed it well to be off on may the first the ships were skirting the sitka coast which chirikoff and bering had explored a quarter of a century previously st elias bering's landfall was sighted so was the spider-shaped bay now known as prince william sound the indians here resembled the eskimos of greenland so strongly that the hopes of the explorers began to rise so keen were they to prove the existence of a passage to the atlantic that when swords beads powder evidently obtained from white traders were observed among the indians the englishmen tried to persuade themselves that these indians must be in communication with the indians of the domain of the hudson's bay company forgetting that russians had been on the ground for forty years cook sailed round the coast past cape prince of wales and through bering strait keeping his prows northward until an impassable wall of ice barred his way having now thoroughly explored the coast cook was satisfied that drake and bering had been right there was no passage east he then crossed to siberia sailed down the asiatic coast and visited the aleutian islands the russians of unalaska and kamchatka resented the english intrusion on their hunting ground while the english refused to acknowledge that they were invading russian territory it was planned to winter and repair the ships at the sandwich islands this part of cook's voyage does not concern canada it was something like a repetition of the transgressions of the russian outlaw hunters and was followed by the penalty that transgressors pay the islanders had welcomed the white men as demigods but the gods proved to have feet of clay to the islanders a sacred taboo always existed round the burial graves cook permitted his sailors to violate this taboo in order to take timber for the repair of his ships perhaps it was a reaction from almost three years of navy discipline perhaps it was the influence of those seductive southern seas however that may be the sailors apparently gave themselves up to riotous debauch the best of the islanders withdrew disillusioned sad sullen resentful over the violation of their sacred burial places only the riff-raff of the natives foregathered with the riotous crew when the ships at length set sail with a crew sore-headed from dissipation by way of a climax to the debauch a number of women and children were carried along retribution came swift as sword-stroke the women set up such a wailing that cook stopped the ships to set them ashore 
In the delay of rowing the boats to land, a fierce gale sprang up. The wind snapped off the foremast of the resolution clean to the decks. The two ships had to put back to the harbour for repairs. Not a canoe, not a man, not a voice welcomed them. The sailors were sullen, Cook was angry, and when the white men wanted to trade for fresh food, the islanders would take only daggers and knives in barter. The white men had stolen from their burial graves. The savages now tried to steal from the ships, and on Sunday, February the 14th, they succeeded in carrying off the large rowboat of the Discovery. Cook landed with a strong bodyguard to demand hostages for the return of the lost boat. The islanders remembered the kidnapping of the women and refused. Cook was foolhardy enough to order his men to fire on any canoe trying to escape from the harbour. The rest of the episode is so familiar that it scarcely needs telling. A chief crossing the harbour in a skiff was shot. The women were at once hurried off to the hills. The men donned their spears and wore mats. A stone hurled from the rabble running down to the shore struck Cook. Enraged out of all self-control, he shot the culprit dead. In defence of their commander, some marines rowing ashore at once fired a musketry volley into the horde of islanders. Cook turned his back to the thronging savages, now frenzied to a delirium, and signalled the marines to cease firing. As he did so, a dagger was plunged beneath his shoulder-blade. He was hacked to pieces under the eyes of his powerless men, and four soldiers also fell beneath the furious onslaught. What need to tell of the wild scramble for the sea, of the war-horns blowing all night in the dark, of the campfires glimmering from the women's retreat in the hills? By dint of threat and show of arms and promises, Captain Charles Clerk, who was now in command, induced the islanders to deliver the remnants of Cook's body. In an impressive silence on Sunday the 21st of February 1779, the coffin containing the great commander's bones was committed to the deep. The sensational nature of Cook's death, within half a century of Baring's equally tragic fate, while exploring the same unknown seas, spread round the world the fame of the exploits of both. It was recalled that Drake had claimed New Albion for England two centuries before. Then rumours came that the Spanish Viceroy in Mexico had been following up the discoveries of both Drake and Bering. One Bruno Hecata from Monterey made report that there were signs of a great turbid river cutting the coastline north of Drake's New Albion. In spite of Cook's adverse report, the questions were again mooted. Where was Juan de Fuca's strait? Did it lead to Hudson Bay? Where was this great river of which both the inland savages and the Spanish explorers spoke? Quebec had fallen. Scottish fur merchants of Montreal had formed the Northwest Company in opposition to the Hudson's Bay Company and were pushing their traders far west towards the Rockies, far north towards the Arctic Circle. Who would be the first to find the great unknown river to fathom the mysteries of Juan de Fuca's strait. Dreaming of these things up in the Athabasca country, Alexander Mackenzie, a trader for the Nor'westers, was preparing to push his canoes down to the Arctic as a preliminary for his greater journey to the Pacific. If Bering's crew, if Cook's crew, both sold half-rotted cargoes of furs for thousands of pounds, 
how much more easily could trading vessels properly equipped reap fortune from the new El Dorado? Inland by canoe from Montreal, overland by flatboat and packhorse from the Missouri, across the continent from Hudson Bay, round the world by the Cape and the Horn, across the ocean from China. It now became a race to the Pacific. Greater wealth seemed there in furs than had been found in gold in the temples of Peru or in silver in the mines of Mexico. The struggle for control of the Pacific, which has culminated in our own day, now began. Spain, Russia, England, Canada and the newborn United States were the contestants in the arena. What has reached its climax in the sluicing of two oceans together at Panama began in the pursuit of sea otter and seal after the voyages of Bering and of Cook. The United States had an added motive. On the principle of protecting native shipping, American ports discriminated against British ships and British ports discriminated against American ships. It was absolutely necessary to their existence as a nation that the United States should build up a merchant fleet. Under fostering laws, with the advantages of cheap labour and abundant timber, a wonderful clipper fleet had been constructed in Massachusetts and Maryland and Virginia shipyards, consisting of swift sailing vessels suitable for belting the seas in promoting commerce and in war. The shipyards built on shares with the merchants who outfitted the cargo. Builders and merchants would then divide the profits. Under these conditions, American traders were penetrating almost every sea in the world, and the cargoes brought back built up the substantial fortunes of many old Boston families. Bostonese, these swift new traders were called from the Baltic to China. It can be readily believed that what they heard of Cook and Bering interested the Boston men mightily. At all events, they fitted out two ships for the Pacific trade, ships that were to range the seas for the United States as Drakes and Cooks had drawn a circle round the world for England. Captain John Kendrick commanded the Columbia, Captain Robert Gray the Lady Washington, and on one of the vessels was a sailor who had been to the northwest coast with Cook. In order to secure Spain's goodwill, letters were obtained to the Viceroy of Mexico, and when, in the course of the voyage, these letters were presented to the Viceroy of Mexico at San Blas, he honoured them by at once issuing orders to the presidios of Monterey and Santa Barbara and San Francisco to arrest both officers and crew if the Americans touched at any Spanish port. Spain was still dreaming of the Pacific being a closed sea. She took cognizance of Bering's exploits to the north, but she at once strove to checkmate and advance south from the north by herself advancing north from the south. It was in 1775 that Hecata had observed the turbid entrance to a great river and the opening to a strait that might be that of Juan de Fuca. However, on Monday, October the 1st, 1787, the two American vessels sailed away from Boston. It was August of 1788 before they were off Drake's New Albion, and in the stormy weather encountered all the way up the Pacific, the little sloop Lady Washington had proved a faster, better sailor than the heavier cargo vessel, the Columbia. Signs of a river were observed, and a pause was made at one of the harbours of the coast either Tillamook or Grays Harbour.
Here the Indians, indignant at a recent outrage committed against them by whites, attacked the Americans and drove them off before they could search for an entrance to the great river. It now became apparent that the small sloop had the advantage, not only in speed, but because it could go in closer to the coast. Towards the end of August, Gray's crew distinctly observed the Olympic Mountains and set down record of Cape Flattery. I am of opinion, notes the mate, that the Straits of Juan de Fuca do exist, for the coast takes a great bend here. At Nootka, surprise awaited the Americans. John Mears and William Douglas, English captains, were there in a palisaded fort and with two vessels. A little trading schooner of thirty tons, named the Northwest America, had just been built, the first ship built on the northwest coast, and was being launched amid thunder of cannon and clinking of glasses. And September the 19th was observed as a holiday the first public holiday in what is now British Columbia. Mears and Douglas entertained Gray at dinner, and over brimming wine glasses gave him the news of recent happenings on the coast. Captain Barclay, another English trader, had looked into the Strait of Juan de Fuca and placed it on his chart. Mears had sought in vain for the river of the west, and did not believe that it existed. In fact, he had named the headland that hid it Cape Disappointment. And, of course, no furs existed on the Pacific coast. When did a fur trader ever acknowledge to a rival that there were furs? Mears reported that he, too, had been down at Tillamook Bay, and Gray guessed that it had been Mears' injustice to the Indians that provoked the raid on himself. Mears was short of provisions, and the Lady Washington needed repairs. The American gave the Englishman provisions to reach China, and the Englishman repaired the American's ship. Mears declared that he had bought all Nootka from the Indians. He did not relate that he had paid only two pocket pistols and some copper for it. Towards the end of September came Kendrick on the belated Columbia. Both Americans were surprised to learn that half a dozen navigators had already gone as far north as Nootka Sound. Perez, Hecata, Quadra, all had coasted Vancouver Island for Spain from 1774 to 1779, and so had La Perouse, the French explorer, in 1787. Hannah had come out from China for furs in 1785. In 1787, Portlock and Dixon had secured almost 2,000 sea otter skins as far north as the Queen Charlotte Islands. These were things Mears did not tell the Americans. It would have been to acknowledge that an abundance of furs was there to draw so many trading ships. But during the winter at Nootka, the men from Boston learned these facts from the Indians. End of chapter 4, part 1. Recorded by Son of the Exiles.